We're in the middle of this sermon series on, uh, on the table in, in Luke's gospel. We've just been looking at all the places throughout this story uh, of Jesus and his salvation where he, uh, where he and his love sat down with people just like you and I and ate a meal. And this morning, as you heard in my prayer, we've come to really the, the meal of meals. We're going to look at Luke 22, verses 1 through 30. Luke 22, verses 1 through 30. And um, we're going to talk about the Lord's Supper today. Let me just invite you uh, to hear the word of the Lord for your life. Let's listen now to, to this passage. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was one of the number of the twelve he went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented, sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread in which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat of it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of that house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. They went and they found it just as he had told them and they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles were with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this, divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. He took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes and it has been determined, but woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this? A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the king of the Gentiles exercised lordship over them, and, the, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater? One who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I'm among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assigned to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. You know, Veterans Day is coming up this week and also thinking about the Last Supper, I was reminded early in our Bible study this week of the final meal of George Washington 
and his officers. Captivating story. December 4th, 1783, downtown New York City. The British had waved the white flag and the local tavern, the Francis Tavern, held this final celebration for Washington and his men. And it was said at the toast that Washington was so overcome with emotion that he held his notes with both hands to try to stop the tremors. Here's a selection of his words. Look at this. He said, with a heart full of love and gratitude, I now take leave of you. I most devoutly wish that your latter days may be as prosperous and happy as your former ones have been glorious and honorable. As soon as Washington finished his regards, witnesses said he took each man one at a time and embraced them as he continued his final farewell. There's something emotional about a last supper, sacred space, really, if you've ever been there with a loved one. Particularly one like that, right? Victory was won, and yet how many lives lost? But this morning, I want to turn you to an even more significant meal. Really, that was just to get us warmed up. In fact, this meal is without a doubt the most important meal in all of history. And our series has been building to this place, to this moment. Every breakfast, lunch, and dinner in Luke's gospel has pointed now to this table, the Last Supper. What must it have been like to to sit in that room, to hear Jesus and his men? Probably didn't come off to them right away as a victory speech, much like Washington's, though it certainly was. And yet, unlike Washington, those words of Christ are now spoken, right? Everyone knows those words. They're spoken worldwide. In the 1400s, Leonardo da Vinci painted what has become one of the most famous art pieces in history. And even though it's not entirely accurate with the scriptures, people come from all over the world to get a glimpse of da Vinci's portrait, right? The painting is so protected. It sits in a climate-controlled room. You've got to be frisked on your way in. 25 people are all that's allowed in at a time and only for 15 minutes and they're ushered right through. And it seemed to me that what would strike home for for so many is is not that this was a last supper, right? Not that da Vinci's painting had some kind of special artistry, but really that this meal is undoubtedly the most renowned meal ever, ever recorded in the history of humankind. How quickly we forget and how familiar it's become. And yet when we come to the Lord's table, it is no ordinary table. This is the Lord's table. Jesus has finally arrived in the city of Jerusalem. His entire life has been pointing to this just as the meals. Luke tells us it was the festival of unleavened bread. And as a part of that festival came the Passover day. This was no ordinary day. It was the crowning holiday for the Jewish faith. You might know it, it marked the moment of God's salvation for his people from their slavery in Egypt. And so the only town where where you could legitimately celebrate this Passover meal was in the holy city, the walls of Jerusalem. So as we read the pages of this story, just put that picture in the context of those words. Hundreds of thousands of pilgrims gathered in the street. The city would have been packed wall to wall with this excitement and energy like we feel at Christmas. And yet here Jesus sits behind the scenes in the quiet of this upper room, prepared ahead of time, anticipating, speaking with his men for one final meal. 
What would be your final last meal of choice? Kind of a compelling thought. Recently, Cornell University did a study on death row inmates and their meal requests. And they found that convicts keep their meals really basic, surprisingly basic. You know, as a gesture of humanity, most prisons still allow inmates to, to order whatever food they would, they would think of within reason. But instead of asking for lobster or caviar, most choose an even more basic meal. Can you guess what it is? No, meatloaf. At, at Legacy, it was guest hamburgers. Look, we're getting closer. The overwhelming request across the board is for fried chicken and potatoes. When it came to dessert, they found a similar pattern. Instead of asking for the good stuff like Napolitan or Rocky Road, the overwhelming request is just chocolate or vanilla. And the researchers concluded that when the end comes, when, when the final days are upon us, what most of us want is the good old country home comfort food. The inmates just want a meal that remind them of better days, of childhood summers, grandma's house, picnics in the back lawn. I've said this before over and over again in our series, but I think it takes on an even deeper meaning this morning. And that is that every table, every meal in your life has a story to tell. So how much more so then when Jesus comes to his last meal? This is my body. This is my blood. And I want to go deep in thought with you about the Lord's table this morning because I think so often in the routine of our practice of that meal, we can forget very quickly its significance in our lives. The story that it tells, the truth that it reveals time and time again. And I want you to see by the time we're done this morning why this meal that started in the upper room is really the most important meal you will ever take in your life. And my hope is that by next Sunday, when we gather up for the Lord's Supper, as we do every month, maybe you'll see the table a little bit differently. And here's how I want to frame our time. Whenever we partake of the Lord's Supper, we should really think about three things. Three checkpoints as you're in line on your way to go to get the bread and the cup. These are, these are the three. First, we should look backward. Second, we should look inward. And third, we should look forward. Backward, inward, forward. So let's start with that first one. You know, if you think about any meaningful meal in your life, that concept of looking back is a major component of the table. Again, thanks Thanksgiving or Christmas. I guarantee you there is something in that spread that tells a story of the past. It might be as simple as grandma's green bean casserole or or it might be the, the story of the pilgrims themselves, but somewhere on your table, there is a story to tell, right? Look at this in verse 19. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is broken, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus wants us to see that this is a meal that should compel us to look back. But for our time this morning, when I say look back, I don't just mean the Lord's Supper. I mean, let's go all the way back to ask the question, what is Jesus doing with the Passover meal to begin with? The last supper that Jesus hosted, right? We often think of it as like this standover, standalone. Like that being that maybe Jesus grabbed some bread off the shelf and some wine and then, and then was like, oh, this is my body, this is my blood. That's not how it happened though. 
really it's, the reality is quite different. See, because in our lesson this morning, Jesus took an existing meal of God's people, a historical storytelling meal that was centuries old, and he transformed it. Made us realize that that meal was pointing to something even greater. Look at our passage. As I said, remember, it's the holiday in Jerusalem, verse seven. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. What's Jesus doing with the Passover meal? Verse 10, he goes on, he says, look for a man carrying a jar of water. Now, how are you gonna find a man carrying a jar of water out of hundreds of thousands of people? Well, at the time, most would have been women carrying the water. So they find this man and he says, follow him to a guest room. It'll be furnished and ready for your preparations. And by the time we get to this place in our passage, it's clear this is no accidental meal. Jesus has been intentionally planning this meal for his entire life. Chose the day and time of this supper without mistake. And in God's perfect timing, he just so happens to place the Lord's Supper right on top of the Passover feast. That means as we walk towards the table, we should really ask two questions. Every, every, every Christian needs to understand these two questions. What was the Passover and what was Jesus doing with this meal? You know, much like, again, our, our Easter holiday will say the Passover was a meal that pointed to a specific salvific moment in Israel's history. You can find it in Exodus 12. For time's sake, though, I'll summarize, and you'll probably remember the story. God's people are enslaved in Egypt by Pharaoh. They had longed and prayed for years for freedom. They had been oppressed, beaten, and forced into labor. Murdered for fear that they would be coming too great of a people. And in their prayers, they beg God for mercy. So God brings 10 plagues to deal with Pharaoh's stubbornness. And he does so that the Pharaoh, so that Pharaoh might relent and let the people go. But what happens? Pharaoh doesn't budge. So then comes the final plague, and this was no ordinary plague. It was a plague that certainly would get Pharaoh's attention, a horrible plague. In fact, the worst plague you can probably think of, the death of the firstborn of every family. Every family in Egypt. And if we were to stop right there, we'd think, man, that is a harsh way. God, God is a judgmental, oh my goodness. And yet in God's mercy and in his grace, he makes a way out of the judgment of Egypt's sin. It was gonna get messy. He said to the Israelites, here's how we do this. Go slaughter a lamb and the blood of the lamb will be placed on the doorposts of your houses. And in so doing, the angel of death will pass over your house, sparing the child inside. So the plague commenced. Israel was spared, God's people were liberated and set free. And that's why it's called the Passover meal. God literally passed over the judgment of these houses. And every year, all of Jesus' life, as a, as a Jewish family, they would have been observant of this celebration and commemoration of this meal over and over. Deuteronomy 16.3, Moses commanded it. He said, you shall eat no unleavened bread, Seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread, the blood of a friction, for you came out of the land of Egypt in haste, that all the days of your life you would remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. 
See, the reason Passover took place during the festival of the unleavened bread is to remind God's people when the time came to go, there was no time for rising dough. That rhymed. Right, when the time came to go, there was no time for the rising dough. They had to take what they could and run across the sea. So here Jesus is centuries later and he's at what we know as the Last Supper, but in so doing, he's eating the Passover meal. Picture groups of a dozen or so people, probably family, gathered with four glasses of wine. Imagine that scattered throughout the meal, each one with significance and spread out like our Thanksgiving feast, ready to retell the story of the Exodus. And each food on that table was a different chapter. Unleavened bread, bitter herbs, the cup, the slaughtered lamb. This was Jesus' last meal. Look at this in verse 15. He says, I have earnestly desired to eat this with you before I suffer. He's been longing for this day, right? Anticipating this moment his entire life to sit finally at the table with the ones he loves. So Jesus takes the cup now, but instead of pointing to the blood of the lamb in Exodus, he says, this cup is now my blood shed for you. And he takes the bread, right? But instead of pointing back to the moment of the unleavened bread, uh, loaves where Israel would be running for their lives, he says, this bread is now my body broken for you. Again, just imagine what it would be like to be a disciple sitting there taking this in. How bewildering this must have been. They all knew about the Passover. They'd grown up with it just like Jesus. But now suddenly there's this, this part two to this story. The symbols are taking on new meaning, transformed. And now it's clear, right? Unlike all the other thousands of spreads and tables around Jerusalem on that day, this table now tells the story of a different slaughtered lamb. This table now tells the story of a, a cup with a different kind of blood. And just as the angel of death passed over the Israelites' homes, so now the Lord by his sacrifice passes over our sin and judgment of our death. And Jesus said, do this now in remembrance of me. Every time we come to the table, we should look back. And not just to the Lord's Supper, right? But to the grand story of God's salvation for his people. To remember his desires to sit at this table with his bride, with you and I, the church. And such that when we come and we look back like Christ, we should tell this story as the Israelites did to our children and our children's children, to new believers. But if we're to do that well, I think we're also called to look inward. Look backward Look inward. Now in the heart of Edinburgh, Scotland is a library dedicated to what curators describe as smart people who keep on doing stupid things. This library of mistakes contains a collection of 2,000 some odd books open to the public detailing blunders of thousands of prominent people in history. Most of the mistakes actually circle around the financial downfalls of 1929, 2008. But as you walk in the building, up on the wall are the famous words which has become their vision statement. It says, for those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And I share that with you, right? Because there is a shadow at this table. There is one among the disciples who was smart enough to follow Jesus, but chose on his own accord to do a stupid, horrible thing. 
Judas, we learn, has decided in his heart to betray his own. And you could say it was for the money, but commentators would tell you it wasn't much. We're told in verse five that at the very, very little thought, he consented to the plan. He was ready to pounce. And then this is the shocking part, right? He has the audacity to show up to the Passover meal with the one he was going to betray. Look at how this plays out in verse 21. Behold, the hand of one who betrays me is on me with the table. For the son of man goes as it had been determined, but woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. So they began to question one another, well, which one of us is it? I find that statement both troubling and comforting. Troubling because in many requests, uh, respects, Judas has already made his decision, right? The toothpaste is out of the tube. And troubling because much like the disciples around him, I feel like we can also recognize the, the waywardness and fallenness of our own sin. It's a humbling, a hard thing to ask. Like, wait, is, is it I, Lord? As Peter asked when he was told he would betray or deny him. And yet this would also, I think, be a comforting moment because somehow Judas is still at the table. I mean, what, what kind of God is it? What does that say about who Jesus is that he would die for those who turned on him? What kind of love is that? Knowing that Judas had already made plans to destroy him, Jesus is the host of this guy's meal. And yet instead of taking the moment and turning from his sin right there, Judas never asks for forgiveness. He eats and drinks this meal to his own judgment. See, and it seems to me as we gather around the table and we retell the story, it would serve us well to include that as part of our preparations, to take a moment and look inward. They all ask themselves, who could do this? Look at this in 1 Corinthians 11. Look at what Paul says about this. He says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself and then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on behalf of himself. When we're at the table, we should look back and remember God's faithfulness. We should look in, remember the community around us, our own need for unmerited grace, and finally look ahead. Look ahead. You know, the table, we call it the Last Supper, and it might be called that, but remember, this is not the last table. Max Lucado once wrote a story about a simple tree in the middle of Oklahoma City. It's an 80-year-old elm tree. And by the looks of its leaves, it could be any other elm tree in the area, but it's become quite famous in and of itself. Tourists stop by constantly to take pictures with it. There's signs keeping people away from getting too close. Landscapers take extra care of the lawn around it. The reason this tree is so well-loved is that unlike the, the rest of the vegetation nearby, this little elm somehow managed to endure the Oklahoma City bombing. After the explosion, the tree was just black with ash, toppled over. Everyone thought it was certainly dead, but then it began to bud again. And today, it's now the most famous tree in all of Oklahoma. Now, I tell you that story, but let me ask this. Why is that? What is it that makes that tree so compelling? Why do so many people gather around to stare at it? 
It's hope, right? There is something inside every human heart longing for that word in their lives. In a desperate and parched, lawless, chaotic word world, there is not a human soul that is not looking for something more. And when we gather around the Lord's table, that's when we rediscover the word hope again. See, the Lord's table is not just a meal of remembrance and looking back. It's also a meal of remembrance of what's to come, what, what we were promised in that meal. It's a meal by the Holy Spirit that nourishes our faith with this great anticipation and even proclamation of God's promise that the one who came is coming again. The disciples seem to be confused in the moment. They'll look at this in verse 24. A dispute arose among them as to which of them would be regarded as the greatest. Now, no one's thinking too far ahead here. The disciples have done some introspection. They've heard these words of Jesus' death, and they're wondering, well, if this is going to end, we got to get this straight here. Which one of us will be known for the power and prominence after you leave? Seems to me they've lost their eternal focus. All they can see is that the temporary world around them, right? The, the kings of Gentiles, in Jesus' words, those who exercise authority. And Jesus says to them, no, 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 the greatest among you is not who you would think. The greatest among you is the one who serves. I'm talking about a different kingdom. And they must have been thinking, what? So Jesus spells it out. He says, no, no, who has the best seat at this table? Who is the one with the seat of honor at this table? It's the one reclining, right? It's me. And yet am I not the one about to go die for you? Look at this in verse 28. He says, yeah, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And so I assign to you as the Father has assigned to me a kingdom, not of this world, that you may eat and drink at my table again. You see the hope in that statement? Jesus says, quit living by the standards of the kingdom around you and start living by the standards of the kingdom to come. I mean, the disciples are, are wondering, like, which one of us are going to be the greatest? I mean, if this is the last meal, we've got to parse this out. Lord, who gets the accolades? And Jesus says, don't you see, you're playing by the rules of a different ball game. That's minor leagues. Anybody watch the Astros game last night? There's, a, there's another kingdom coming, Jesus said. This kingdom is not of this world. And at this kingdom, you will feast as inheritors of that kingdom for eternity with me. Not because of what you've done, but because of what the lamb has done. And here's how you know this was a prepared meal. Look at this all the way back in Luke 13. Jesus had already told them, People will come from east and west, north and south, and they'll recline at a table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last will be first, and some who will first will be last. This week, I want to encourage us to consider again our table manners. I thought about moving communion up a week so we could practice it right now and get into it. But then I thought better of it. I thought, let's, let's take the week and really prepare our hearts, slow this down. And as I said, my prayer is that by next Sunday, as we gather for communion together, maybe we'll see it a bit differently. That in looking back this week, we'll remember and reflect on what God's salvation really is for us. 
that in looking in, we'll realize that the need for that salvation and our, our brokenness, our need to submit ourselves again to him. And that as we come and we taste and see, it won't just be in this moment, but we'll come with an anticipation of the future. That as you take of the bread and you drink of the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death and resurrection until he comes again. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. Say it with me. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, of all the food we could ever eat, of all the gatherings we could ever partake in, Lord, we, we come back to remember this morning the significance of your table, of what it means that sinful as we are, you have invited us to take a seat and to recline with you. So God, this week, as we prepare to, to take of your supper next Sunday, would you help us to do those three things? Lord, would you keep us mindful as we eat at our own tables and we, we look back, would you help us to tell the story to our children? To be reminded of your faithfulness throughout generations. God, would you help us to look inward? Would you keep us mindful this week of our brokenness and our waywardness? Sanctify us by your truth. God, may we not, not be like Judas, who is defiant to your face at the table, Lord, but may we be humble in spirit, turning to you. God, and would you keep us mindful of the future? Give us a hope. Lord, that as we sit at your table next week, God, would it be a foretaste of the table to come. May that give us endurance to run the race that you have set out for us. Lord, we thank you for this meal. God, we pray already this, this coming Sunday that you would bless it. By your Holy Spirit, we would be nourished by it and led by you. In Jesus' name, all God's people said.